Yeah, I'm gonna go ahead and take these chopsticks I'm fiddling with and put them out of reach. Bilal Kaifa, listeners, and welcome to the Non-Toxic Fanboys, where the name is aspirational and where the saga of Dune is far from over. We are continuing our Dune Watch, this time featuring the 2000 Sci-Fi Channel miniseries starring Alec Newman as Paul Mwadib and William Hurt as the big-name actor featured in all of the ads. I am Glenn, and as always on the Non-Toxic Fanboys... My brother comes... Scott! Last time, we discussed the various ways that the 1984 film version of Dune disappointed and confounded us. What do you make of the 2000 miniseries? Did that leave a better impression with you? Definitely better. It's better in a lot of ways. I don't know if it's necessarily good. It had many significant improvements over the 84 movie, but it also had its own fatal flaws. And so in the end, I don't know if I can really say it was a great adaptation. I think this miniseries fell into one of the easy problems to have when you're adapting something like Dune, which the 1984 movie did in its own way, but in a different way, in that I felt at times in the miniseries, especially in the first episode covering the first section of the book, like it was kind of going through the stations of the dune. I started calling it in my notes, where it felt like a series of unconnected vignettes almost. Well, part of that is from the television nature of the show. Like, we're not seeing it with the commercial breaks. So the whole thing just sort of stops and fades out and then comes back in a completely different scene. That seems a lot weirder now because we're not watching two minutes of ads for, you know, facial cream and Nintendo 64s and whatever. Facial cream and Nintendo 64s, those were the things that were on sale in the year 2000. Those are the products I came up with off the top of my head. Uh, what kind of PlayStation did they have at that point? How many PlayStations were there? The impression I got was sort of that it was like skimming the surface of Dune. Like a lot of the really deep, convoluted subject matter that Dune the novel covers, I felt like this miniseries was just sort of skimming the surface of it real quick. Like getting a base impression of it across to the audience, but never really delving into the real meat of the matter. Like they mention that the religious role that Paul and Jessica are taking up are kind of bullshit, but they never really delve into it much. They just sort of like mention that and then go along with it. They mention Alia's other memory, but they never really delve into it much. A lot of the stuff Paul is doing, a lot of Paul's vision and what Paul is trying to do in response to his visions, a lot of that feels like it was like presented in a very surface level and never really delved into a lot. Like, they clearly show that Paul is having visions, and a lot of what he's doing is in response to the visions he's having, but I don't know that the miniseries necessarily communicates how much he's motivated by trying to prevent the future he sees in his visions, and how much he fails at that. The implanted myths and Paul desperately trying to avoid the future he's seeing are two things I specifically wanted to ask you about because I know that one of your major, major points of contention with the 84 movie was how they didn't acknowledge or seem to understand the subversions of the myth fulfillment and hero's journey tropes that are present in the book. 
And so I was paying particular attention to that while I was watching the miniseries, and they do gesture at both of those. Like, if you know which lines are referring to those aspects of the story, you know that they're there, but they're not really placed front and center. I think you're right that it does that aspect of the story at kind of a surface level. It does delve into some of the details of the political intrigue in a way that I think makes those aspects of the story come across pretty well for a televised adaptation. But the religious element, the idea that Paul is desperately trying to avoid the future he winds up falling into anyway, that's kind of there. Yeah, it's there if you know to look for it, but I don't know that it necessarily comes across really clearly or that it's emphasized nearly enough. Yeah, I'll agree with that much. I mean, at least it's there to some extent. And they never really communicate the scope of what he's seeing either. Like, they have a vision of, like, a bunch of Fremen chanting his name, and then later in the movie, there's the scene where a bunch of the Fremen are chanting his name, just like in the vision. But, like, they never really show that, like, he sees the Fremen storming the universe and killing billions of people across the Imperium in a jihad led in the name of Muad'Dib. I don't see any hint of that vision in the miniseries. There's at least one vision, I think, that has extended clips of the Fremen battling quite a lot that I think was supposed to convey that. I'm not sure it really does convey that as much as it should. I mean, you could just take that as a vision of the Fremen fighting in the final battle at the end of Part 3. But I think that was also supposed to stand for the Jihad following the story of this miniseries. Another thing this miniseries did is they did a lot of stuff out of order compared to how the book goes. When Paul and Jessica join the Fremen tribe, there's like a whole long sequence where like they're already leading commando raids against the Harkonnen before Paul is even part of it, before they've really been accepted into the Fremen tribe, into the Fremen society. There's like a long delay before they finally get to the scene where Jessica is invested as a reverend mother, which I thought happened like pretty much as soon as they got to the siege. Like not as soon as, but like pretty much when they were accepted into Fremen society, one of the first things that happened was that Jessica was invested as a reverend mother. And then Paul started teaching the Fremen the battle tactics he learned as an Atreides heir. And that's when they started leading all the commando raids on the Harkonnen. But in the miniseries, it's like those commando raids are already going on and Stilgar is the one showing them to Paul. And then it's significantly later when they finally get to the part where they make Jessica the Reverend Mother. I think they're probably conflating the ongoing fight between the Fremen and the Harkonnen and the later raids that Paul starts leading after he's fully accepted and proves himself as a member of the Fremen society. I think the ongoing fighting that was happening anyway kind of gets folded into that. That's probably just the sort of compression that you have to do, even if you have a six-hour miniseries to make of this thing. But also at the end, or towards the end, I mean, you just reread the book, so correct me if I'm wrong on the order of this, but towards the end, when Paul is reunited with Gurney, it's like right after that, that they do the whole convocation where he claims the title of Duke in order to become the Fremen leader without having to kill Stilgar. And then it's after that, that Gurney confronts Jessica thinking she's the traitor. 
they do all of that out of order in the miniseries as well, where they don't do the part where Paul claims the title of Duke until after he takes the water of life. I don't recall when exactly those events happened in relation to each other, because it was right after they picked up Gurney that he confronted Jessica. Yeah. That's how it goes in the book. It's right after they pick up Gurney where he does the whole thing where he claims the title of Duke in order to make himself the Fremen leader without having to kill Stilgar. And then it's right after that whole confrontation slash ceremony slash whatever when Gurney confronts Jessica thinking she's the traitor. And Paul has to talk him down and then Paul says, you know, I didn't see that coming. I have to know what's coming. And that's when he takes the water of life. Yeah. But in the miniseries, Gurney confronts Jessica, and then Paul takes the water of life, and then it's not till after that that they do the whole thing with Stilgar and wearing the Duke's ring. Yes, yeah, then they have the whole thing where he has to call out Stilgar. So yeah, there's just a lot of stuff that's out of order in the miniseries that I found weird. Like in one scene after they're assimilated into the Fremen tribe, after Paul has gone out with Stilgar to observe the raids on the Harkonnens, And then Paul comes back to the siege and Jessica is like visibly, obviously pregnant and not trying to hide it. And then three scenes later, they make her a reverend mother and holy shit, you should have told us you were pregnant. Yeah, the reverend mother should have been more observant. Well, that's because in the book that happened way earlier. Yeah. Well, that also gets me to another thing, which is things they just flat out changed. Like, in the book, Jessica theorizes that the reason Fremen have Reverend Mothers is because sometime in the distant past, a Reverend Mother was stranded on whatever planet the Fremen were on at that time, and implanted herself into Fremen society by making herself this religious leader, and now the Fremen have sort of continued on that tradition and have their own sort of independent fork of the Reverend Mother tradition that they've continued on through the years. Whereas in the miniseries, they just say, no, the Fremen Reverend Mother is a Benny Gesserit that was stranded with the Fremen. Did they say that definitively? In the miniseries, they did, yes. I must not have picked up on that one because I figured because the ceremony that she has with Jessica basically passes her consciousness and all of her memories and all of the Reverend Mothers preceding her, that that kind of confuses the boundaries of their identities enough that it wouldn't necessarily be that actual physical person. Yeah, in the miniseries, they say specifically, Reverend Mother Romalo herself is a Bene Gesserit that got stranded with the Fremen, not like an nth generation spiritual descendant of a Bene Gesserit that got stranded with the Fremen and started a tradition within the Fremen that sort of mirrors the Bene Gesserit Reverend Motherhood. Hmm. That's probably compressing it a little too much then, because that's a lot of tradition to accrue over one person's lifetime, even enhanced by Spice. But I think the biggest thing they changed in this miniseries that, like, put a whole new flavor on the entire story, really, in a lot of ways, is making the Princess Irulan, like, an actual sympathetic audience viewpoint character. And not only that, but sort of introducing an attraction between her and Paul. I don't think there was really an attraction on Paul's part. I think the portrayal of that dynamic was more that she found him interesting and was trying, maybe, to make advances on him, but he had absolutely no interest. 
I don't know that he had absolutely no interest so much as he was nervous and befuddled and inexperienced. And just too moody. That's one thing this miniseries does pretty well, is portraying Paul's teenage moodiness. He basically spends the entire first episode reclining in casually disrespectful ways. But, like, making Princess Irulan a sympathetic character who has a pre-established, flirty, mutual attraction relationship with Paul puts an entirely different spin on that final scene than it has in the book. Yeah. I understand wanting to do something with Irulan because, in the book, there are sections of Irulan's future writings introducing each chapter, and you can't have something like that in a televised adaptation. The closest you can get is a voiceover, which there is briefly, but not five minutes of voiceover like in the movie. Yeah. So, I understand wanting to do something with that character, and if you're going to do something with that character, I understand using her as a viewpoint into the Emperor's inner circle. As a way to portray the political intrigue of the story, without just having everyone stand around and explain it to the camera. Hmm. There's a lot less standing around explaining things to the camera in this miniseries. There's only a very little bit of standing around and explaining things to the camera. And while her interactions with Paul were somewhat strange, having just recently read the book again, I do think that her role in getting us into more of the Emperor's intrigue was pretty effective. Hey, Count Fenring even got into this thing for a hot second. Yeah, they did use Fenring for some stuff. Although they sort of... I don't know that replaced Fenring, but they... Because in the book, when the Baron is having Fade Routh's birthday celebrations on Geedy Prime, Fenring is the one that the Emperor sends to represent him. And in the miniseries, they sort of replace Fenring with Irulan. But then they have Fenring there as well. Well, in the miniseries, Fenring is just kind of the Emperor's co-conspirator, or the Emperor's advisor. Yeah, in the book, he came across as a much more menacing figure. Well, in the book, he was kind of the Emperor's consigliere, right? He was the go-between with the Harkonnens, and Irulan does not fill that role. Like, she maybe tries to put on the image that she's some sort of go-between, but she's really kind of a spy for the brief time that she goes to see the Harkonnens. And likewise, seducing Fade. Yeah, that scene is funny to me. Like, she is seducing Fade at his bath, and then another woman walks up who's topless, and Fade is so distracted that the Emperor's heir can just walk out of the room without even being noticed. Well, Fade isn't the smartest guy in the room. I like that they included Fade trying to assassinate the Baron with one of the Baron's sex toys. Well, I was going to say one of the Baron's twinks, but okay. I like that they included that. I thought that was a nice detail to include. Well, that's another way that the series is trying to get into more of the intrigue that's at the heart of the story in the book. Yeah. And that I kind of appreciate. They're portraying more of the plans within plans and the kind of war of all against all that is the political system in Dune. You know, Fade is plotting against the Baron, the Baron is plotting against the Emperor, the Emperor is plotting against the Baron, everyone's plotting against the Atreides. That kind of deeply woven internecine squabbling, I think, was portrayed pretty well here. Yeah. 
Also, the Baron? Yeah, let's talk about the Baron a little. The portrayal of the Baron has about 85% less maniacal flying fat man in it. So it's a definite improvement. Yeah, there's only a little bit of maniacal flying fat man. For most of it, he's just a maniacal floating fat man. Well, no, for most of it, he's a devious floating fat man. Well, for most of it, he's not, like, flying through the air. He's, like, in a hover chair. Yeah, I think I likened it to Professor X in my notes. And also, if we're comparing ways to take the Baron's portrayal from the original novel and make it less homophobic, the fact that they made all of his victims adults didn't really work great for me in the 84 movie. (laughs) In this miniseries, they basically portray Fade's heterosexual hedonism as just as major a character flaw as the Baron's homosexual hedonism. So... I don't know if that balances or if that, like, makes it not as homophobic since they're, like, equal opportunity. Sexual hedonism is a mark of evil? Eh? I mean, it's still not great. Yeah. Like, I don't know if there's a totally good way to portray that aspect of it. I don't know that there's a totally good way to have the evil, maniacal fat man. You know, maybe there are some aspects of the story that should just be jettisoned. But I do think only having the Baron scream maniacally in a couple of scenes does add some layers to the portrayal. Well, instead of having the Baron fly around laughing maniacally, in this miniseries, the Baron is a poet and he doesn't even know it. Oh, he knows. Like, I don't remember that from his book characterization. No, he wasn't as susical. no. But I did enjoy that, for the most part, they portrayed the Baron as much more of a serious, scheming enemy, rather than just, like, a comical, flying fat man. Yeah, he definitely comes across as intelligent, in a way that he really needs to, to sell a lot of that political aspect of the story. Yeah, like... His schemes and his intrigues are a legitimate threat. Yeah, exactly. As opposed to him just being a buffoon. Although they do still have scenes where he flies around with his belly hanging out. Yeah. So, like, it's not a 100% improvement on the Barrett's portrayal, but it is an improvement. I mean, as I've said before, I think a lot of the design aspects of a Dune adaptation should be weird as hell. But the Baron is wearing, like, a leather onesie or something? I'm not even sure how to describe the thing the Baron's wearing. I mean, it's better than the 84 movie where he's dressed as Bastion Booger. I mean, his big flowing red robe that covers his whole flotation apparatus is fine enough, but when he takes that off and he just has a cape around his leather diaper? I don't even know. That kind of undercuts the intelligence and deviousness of the character. I thought Raban was portrayed very well in this movie, too. That was one of the few things the 84 movie did well, and I thought this 2000 miniseries also did Raban pretty well. Yeah, this Raban is just a dipshit high school jock bully. Which, as you were saying in the previous episode, is exactly what Raban ought to be. And at the end of the miniseries, he gets the Mussolini treatment, so that's cool. 
Okay, here's one thing that kind of bothered me. There's a lot of stuff in this miniseries that is there just because it's in the 84 movie and not because it has anything to do with the book. There is some influence of the long shadow of the movie, yeah. Including beginning with a Princess Irulan voiceover, which doesn't even communicate a lot of useful information, but at least it's not like a three-minute monologue like the 84 movie. No, that opening voiceover, I think, is fairly well done if you're going to have an opening voiceover. I think it conveys the information it needs to convey. I was actually, in terms of the expression of the exposition, somewhat impressed with the way they introduced a lot of the setting in the first episode without just bombarding us with a lot of proper nouns we have no context for. Like, we don't need to hear about Chome, we don't need to hear about the Lonsrod, we don't need to hear about the Padishah Emperor, we just need to know, this is an imperial system, we need the spice from this planet, this house is taking it over from this house and they're fighting. Let's get into the story. Yeah, they do streamline some stuff that you don't really need. One one thing that jumped out at me is the whole naming Paul Usel. Yeah, they left that out entirely. Which serves no purpose in any adaptation, including the original novel, because nobody else in the novel has that second name. Yeah, what was Stilgar's private name? Yeah, what was Chani's private name? Yeah, I I never noticed that until just recently, but yeah, he's the only one with a special private name. Yeah, that doesn't really serve much purpose. So leaving that out, I think, actually does streamline things. Although, speaking of the whole naming thing, another thing they left out is... In the book, when Paul is asked, what do you want your Fremen name to be? And he says, how about the name of that little mouse? And they tell him the name of that mouse is Muad'Dib. And Paul goes, oh shit, I've seen visions of a billion people being murdered in the name of Muad'Dib. And so to try to change that future, he says, no, don't call me Muad'Dib. I want to honor my birth father as well. Call me Paul Muad'Dib. And that's sort of his desperate attempt to try to alter that future. In the 84 movie, they have him requesting the name Paul be added on to his Fremen name, but they don't give any clue as to why. It just seems like a random request. And in this adaptation, they just omit that entirely. He just takes the name Wadib. Well, I think that even if you're not going to tie that into desperately trying to avoid the calamities of the future... It would at least be part of the portrayal of his grief for his father. The whole thing about, I don't want to forsake the name my father gave me. Well, that's how he explains it to the Fremen when he makes the request. But that's not actually explained at all in the 84 movie when he makes the request. And like I said, the request is entirely omitted from this 2000 adaptation. Yeah, that's heavily streamlined. They actually made a couple of good cuts, I think. After the Harkonnen attack on the Atreides, when Paul and Jessica are left to die in the desert, they cut out the whole sequence where they're on the Harkonnen ship and overcome the crew and escape and crash in the desert, which can take up a good chunk of time and takes up a chunk of time in the movie. But in the miniseries, the Baron says, well, I don't know what happened to them. They were off in the desert somewhere. And we see them off in the desert somewhere, left to die, pick up the rest of the story. That, I think, is a pretty smart cut. Can I just point out how all these adaptations do Duncan Idaho dirty? 
Oh, Duncan's barely in anything. He's barely in this. Well, he's barely in the first book. Yeah. But in the book, Duncan has like this heroic death where he fights a ferocious rearguard action against an entire Harkonnen troop and just kills enemy after enemy after enemy, protecting Paul and Jessica's escape. And in the 84 movie, he gets shot. And in this miniseries, he stays behind to let Paul and Jessica escape and then immediately gets blown up by a rocket and accomplishes nothing. He stays behind just cuz and then gets blown up. Like, the only significant thing he does in the entire first book is that hero's death, and none of these adaptations actually give him that. I mean, the significant things that Duncan does in the first book are to begin the alliance between the Atreides and the Fremen and then die. And he at least gets to do the first one in the miniseries. Well, yeah, that's his crucial role at that point, but most of that happens off screen. At least off screen in the book. They actually show a little bit more of it in the miniseries. Let's talk a little more about some of the portrayals of the characters in this miniseries. Because as much as I felt initially like we were kind of going through the motions of the story beats that had to get in there, the stations of the dune, by the second and third parts of the miniseries, I think they were doing a fairly good job of portraying the characters as characters, as human beings who had development and had dynamics with each other, who weren't just doing things because the story needed them to do things because this is the way the story is written. I think there's more of a journey for Paul because Alec Newman is portraying him as more of a moody teenage type, even though he's 26, but whatever. We're in a 90210 world. This is all 25-year-old people playing teenagers. It's fine. But there's more of an emphasis on his moodiness and immaturity early on. Yeah, I don't even remember him being that moody and immature in the book. It's emphasized a lot more in this miniseries, so you have that contrast later on. In the book, if I'm honest, there's not a whole lot of character development. There's not a whole lot of character journeys. Dune is one of those books that definitely falls into the idea that you might have about a lot of the big-name sci-fi books of the time that went very long on backstory and very long on premise and a little short on character. Like, you can say that about a lot of Asimov, too. And there's definitely a lot of attention paid in this miniseries toward making these rounded-out characters. Hmm. And I think they manage it in a few instances. There is some actual chemistry between Paul and Chani, by the latter portions of Part 3, at least. Like, they don't just suddenly fall in love because the story says we're in love now. Oh yeah, I like their interactions a lot. The only real stumbling block I had with that is that Chani is supposed to be like 58 and she's being played by a 30-year-old. Mm, yeah. Like, at the very least, she should look the same age as Paul. Well, you know, she lives in the desert. They don't have moisturizer. But other than that, yeah, I think they both do really good jobs with their roles. They even managed to get some of the dynamic between Chani and Jessica in there, which in the book is a relationship that's heavily fraught. And that's not emphasized a whole lot in the miniseries, but they did get enough of it in that you know that there is a relationship between them. By the way, just because this is a thing that I like to check, 
The actress playing Chani was 30 years old in 2000. The actor who plays her father was 31. Oh, shit, really? <laughs> oh, is it that bad? Okay, but if Alec Newman was 26, is that like the only time in Hollywood when the female in the love story was played by an older actress? I mean, maybe not the only time, but... Although Julie Cox was 27, so both of his love interests were older. Well. Also, that whole thing... I didn't mention this when we were talking about things that they changed, but... That whole thing where, like, the identity of Liette was this super secret, mysterious thing, and everyone thought the imperial ecologist was named Pardot-Kinds, or Pardo-Kinds? How do you pronounce that? How do you pronounce anything in Dune? Just do as thou wilt. That's a whole layer of mystery that isn't in the book. It's just a guy named Liet Kynes, and he's the Imperial Ecologist, and the Imperial people don't know he's also a Fremen. But they introduce that whole other layer of mystery of who is this mysterious Liet who's the Fremen leader. We don't know. I think there actually was some of that in the book. No, in the book, Pardot Kynes is just the name of Liet's father. Pardo Kynes was his father, yeah, but there's some ambiguity, at least among the non-Fremen, over the identity of this Liet. I think. I don't think that's in the book at all, because in the book they just introduce him as the Imperial Ecologist Liet Kynes. Everyone knows the Imperial Ecologist on Arrakis is Liet Kynes. Nobody knows the extent of his relationship with the Fremen. But they know he's Liet Kynes. It's not like a secret identity, like fucking Superman. Am I totally misremembering? I thought there was a thing where Liet was actually his siege name. I think it was, but it was also the name he was known as just generally. Okay, yeah, I'm just misremembering then. The, the ambiguity about him was how involved he was with the Fremen, not like a whole secret identity thing. Yeah. Alright. That was a whole extra layer of mystery that they just added in the miniseries just because, I suppose. Well, there wasn't enough intrigue in Dune yet. I don't understand that change. It just makes things more confusing for anyone who didn't read the book, and it makes no sense for people who did read the book because they already know who he is. Although, to the miniseries' credit, they did do an admirable job of trying to make him look more than one year older than his daughter, Chani. Well, you mean with the gray, fizzled hair? Yeah. But you're right that a lot of the portrayals in the miniseries are really good. I thought Julie Cox as Irulan was really good, even if I have quibbles about the way they wrote Irulan in the miniseries. I thought the performance was really good. The Emperor was really good. The Baron we talked about it was a huge improvement. Gurney Halleck I thought was really good. I thought Saskia Reeves as Jessica was really good. Like, the only really bad piece of acting or casting is William Hurt. Okay, let's talk about William Hurt as Duke Leto. He's like a walking sonambulant. <laughs> and I think part of the reason why you said that all of these great character portrayals don't really settle in until episode two or three is because that's when they all don't have to interact with William Hurt anymore. In the Companion's oral history of the Dune miniseries, which, it's a thing that happened, obviously there's an oral history of it. As in, we did some interviews and didn't write a story, here are some interviews. 
I register once again my objection to referring to anything that appeared in print as an oral history. So noted. The editor and one of the producers comments on William Hurt's performance that he had taken this point of view that his character was so regal and so pondering that he took forever to deliver his dialogue. He would take these huge pauses. He can't get mad at me now. I literally had to speed up the space between line deliveries, and he didn't notice. (laughs) Uh, Before that, he says, I was such a fan of William Hurt, I was so impressed that we got him, and he asked me, so what do you think of my performance? Do you think it's a little slow? And I said, well, honestly, yes. Oh, God. So, I understand the idea that William Hurt has there. That Leto is a person who deeply, deeply considers everything he does and everything he says, and is very deliberate in his every action. Maybe that doesn't quite come across as well as it could in his performance, but knowing that that's the idea behind it, I understand it. I think Leto is a person of great gravitas. Mm hmm. He's a person who commands respect. He's a person who commands loyalty. He's a person who inspires loyalty. Yeah. I mean, that's what the entire character of Gurney Halleck is there to convey. And I don't think William Hurt really conveys that. Like, it doesn't come off as regal. It just comes off as slow. I think if there had perhaps been more scenes, like his scene with Jessica where he's more relaxed, where he doesn't have to be so ponderous and so deliberate in his actions, and he can kind of relax with the limited number of characters he can relax with, I think maybe that would have gone a long way to portray a different side of the character, where the sort of slow, deliberate demeanor that he takes on because of the politics invested in everything he does can kind of take a backseat with his lady, maybe with his son, maybe with Gurney or trusted advisors or something. If there had been a little more of that to show a different shade of the character, I think that would have gone a long way to fleshing it out. Yeah, I was going to say, there are several scenes that's just him and Paul, and he doesn't display that different demeanor in any of them. Like, the big line that was in all of the ads is his line about, here we need desert power, and he sounds like he's falling asleep. (laughs) Although that line did inspire me to create this. Nobody needs me. Here we need desert power. This is where you're putting it? (laughs) Why not? Now we don't have an ad break. Get at us, HelloFresh. If there's one other portrayal that I would have to call out as being inferior or disappointing or just not what I'm looking for, I might have to say Stilgar. Stilgar, I thought, was fine. He does what he needs to. Stilgar, I thought, was okay. And not really anything better than that. He's stoic, and he comes to be very loyal to Paul, and that's about it. Of course, the casting of Stilgar 
as are many of the characters other than the top-line featured players, a result of the filming circumstances and the budget of this production. There are a whole lot of fill-in-the-Eastern-European actors in this. Well, yeah. Pretty much everyone other than, like, a couple of the headliners. Oh, there is some diversity of accents here. I mean, before rewatching the miniseries just the other day, I had totally forgot that Duncan was Scottish. Gurney as Cockney is well-spotted. He's the working-class one of the bunch. But yeah, Stilgar and a lot of the supporting players are, you know, I don't know enough about the subtleties of Eastern European accents. I couldn't tell you who's from Prague and who's from Latvia, but still. There's one other character note that I just want to mention quickly. The portrayal of Alia, as you mentioned earlier, doesn't get into enough of her backstory and enough of her premise, really, to really let it sink in. But during the climactic scene at the end of Part 3, where Paul is dictating his terms to the Emperor and to the Spacing Guild... Off on the side of the screen, Alia is just kind of sitting on the throne pedestal, giggling to herself. And that, I thought, was a lovely, lovely little character note. She is just loving this. (laughs) Her interactions with the Emperor and with the Baron. Child actors can be tough, and her scene with Jessica earlier on was a little stiff, maybe. But her interactions with the Emperor and with the Baron are just delightful. Yeah, she's great in that scene. So, that's Dune 2000. The miniseries, not the video game. Yeah, are we going to do an episode about the video game? Are we going to play that on Twitch? Is that multiplayer? I have very little idea. So that's Dune 2000. A marked improvement. It has some definite highlights. So our next episode is going to be about the 2020 film of Dune, released in 2021. What are the main things that these first two adaptations haven't gotten right or haven't totally gotten right that you think are crucial for the new film? Well, I don't know how many of these would even be in the new film since that's only like the first half of the story, but... This 2000 adaptation was a huge, such a huge improvement over the 84 movie, but one place that I really wish they had gone deeper or conveyed more clearly is just how much Paul is trying to prevent the horrible things he sees in his visions. Like, how clearly he sees the consequences of his actions and how much he's trying to change his visions so that they don't occur that way and how miserably he fails at that at every attempt. I don't feel like even this 2000 adaptation really conveyed that clearly. Yeah, he shows some reluctance, but it's not really highlighted. I think there's a lot more room to go further in terms of the character relationships. I think it would be great if they could emphasize Duke Leto a little more, especially since the new movie is going to be the first part of the book. There should be a much greater emphasis on Duke Leto and his relationship with Jessica, his relationship with Paul, his position in the internecine political squabbling in the story. 
I think splitting the story into a couple of movies should be an opportunity to put a lot more emphasis on Duke Leto. And casting Oscar Isaac should be reason enough to put a lot more emphasis on Duke Leto. So I hope there's more characterization there. But we shall see what we shall see. And we will come back next time to see what we have seen. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for the show, you can find us at Nontoxic Fanboys on Twitter and Facebook, or you can email us at nontoxicfanboys at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that at patreon.com slash nontoxicfanboys. And you can find all of this info, plus every episode of the podcast and all of our other accounts, like our YouTube channel, our Twitch channel, and our Discord server, all listed at our website, nontoxicfanboys.com. The theme music to this podcast is Discovery by Alexander Nakarada. Details are in the episode description. Thank you all for listening. We will see you next time. Was that a podcast? God, I hope. (laughs) The saga of June is far from over.